0: 11, 11, 11,
1: This is you Two
0: outlaws on the lam Taking the back roads through America You
2: can't drink no coffee for this show And now it's time for Monday Madness With the Moped Outlaws Greg and Mark um. With another episode of Moped Outlaws, and we're here with special guest Mike Oppenheim. Welcome.
0: Sir. And we're almost live. We used to be live, but now <laughs> it's not really live anymore. That's but true. we're getting used to saying that. I like, go over and over again. It, um, it's great to have you. Thanks for showing up. It's great to be here. Thank you both for having me on. Really yeah. excited. Right on. You've had a pretty interesting life. Music, writing. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, yeah,
1: (laughs) I I turned 41 last year, so I figure I'm like about halfway through it and I'm pretty happy.
2: Maybe with the way medicine's going, you might, you know, be well, hundred.
1: I will probably refuse the, uh, life extension if it's ever developed and comes out. But, you know, I say that now, who knows?
2: (laughs) Yeah. What would life extension look like?
1: I don't know, but if it's, it involves any injection into my brain, I'm out. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't want permanent consciousness with a body that's
0: failing. That sounds horrible.
2: Yeah. You know, so when, when you're I'm talking
0: about it, the singularity, right? You don't you don't want to have your consciousness uploaded to the cloud. Not even slightly. I, I've listened to Ray Kurzweil's
1: appeals, and I just, they don't, I don't buy them. I, I understand his take, but I'm not there. Yeah.
0: Well, you Do you know, know who he, Neil Stevenson is? Yeah, I read um, what it's called, The Diamond Age. I loved that book. Yeah, he did a book about three years ago that's about this process where the cool. one of his characters from Snow Crash is actually an ancillary oh, cool. character and Snow Crash becomes a central figure in a story where they actually end up, they've been building a model where they were going to upload people to. They hadn't done anything yet. They'd been putting relatives there just as a possibility. They weren't sure what was happening. And so he ends up dying unexpectedly, and they upload him, but he doesn't know who he is. And so <laughs> it's a great whole thing. And I'd they like talk to... about, of course, because Neil Stephen is is such a research hound, they talk about all of the data capacity and power capacity necessary to maintain that level wow, of computing power. Yeah. It's a great book. You should read it. That's cool. It, I definitely wipes, check out. it, out. it wipes out the idea of people being – Uploaded in any kind of quantity because the, the essential infrastructure needed to maintain more than like 100 people is just beyond the scope of what we could generate for as far as computing power. And um, so that that's a big part of the singularity that would have to change is how much computing power we have. I guess with a quantum computer, maybe I could be forever man
1: It's fun because I live in Arizona and they're building the biggest like uh, quantum mechanics center ever. And it's supposed to like put uh, Taiwan's system to shame and all that. And it's uh, even that's not—it's like barely enough. They say to support like the GBT five project. So yeah, it's it's interesting that we—I think we as a species have not really considered this one actually very important detail, which is uh, power and energy to maintain systems.
2: All right, since we're in this realm, didn't expect (laughs) to be here. We've lost ninety-eight percent of our audience. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But here's – I just came across within a year this information that someone – because right now, as I understand it, the mechanics of um, programming is zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. But someone had created a neutral setting, so there was going to be three elements to programming, which everyone's saying is exponentially going to blow the whole thing up. And I haven't gone back into research, but if that's going on, along with this quantum power of computing that's happening and the whole AI thing, there's a strong potential that 10 years from now, we really will have the capacity for.
0: Well, what you're describing, Greg, is the way that quantum computing is code. That three-way switch you talked about is the foundation of quantum computing.
2: But it They're isn't live. So is it live in the world? I'm gonna turn off my phone here. Is yeah, there are a couple
0: computers. You know? There are a couple computers that exist. Google has a couple and some other um countries have them. And then of course SmurSh secretly has them.
2: I think Mike has the guy. joke.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Mike's uh, old enough
0: to know who Smirsch is.
1: Definitely. And I'm also just um It's out of control. I think, like, Pandora's box, if there is such a thing, it is wide open and I'm just going to exist and see what happens. I can't, like, possibly get to the nitty-gritty of all this kind of stuff and, yeah.
2: Well, on that note, the fact that um, ChatGPT just launched in November of last year and AI has inundated everything that I see, you know, it's incredible.
1: Yeah. And we're, it's funny because you mentioned our age, like, we are so in the middle of this. Like there's a generation older than us that doesn't actually care. And then there's a generation younger than us that doesn't know any difference. And we are the only people and we're just going to like live and die and remember like pre ATM life. Like that's how I refer to it. Like there was just banks closed on Friday. And if you didn't have money, that's it. Like wait till Monday. You wrote uh, a check. (laughs)
2: Yeah. <laughs> I had an aunt that um, lived to 104, and I remember her telling me when she saw an airplane in the sky, the first time she saw a jet, it was alien. It's like, what is that? That's crazy.
0: Wow. Yeah. I think we should correct maybe a misconception, Mike. Greg and I are both 60. so Oh, well, actually, I mean, that I consider generation, the same bracket.
1: <laughs> well, I'm at the very end of Jet X, so I figure we're all in the, yeah, the same enough. boat.
0: Yeah, we're we're Um, spiritually immature, so we're right with you. (laughs) Gotcha.
2: (laughs) So, um, what is it about avocados that makes it that they get a mention in your bio?
1: You know, it's it's weird. I've never been asked that directly, and I have a real answer that came to my mind when you asked, which is uh, when I was very young, I would travel... Not very young. When I was in my 20s, I was traveling through Europe, and I discovered that not only do I love avocados, but they're the best thing to buy and travel with because you buy them when they're like rock hard and green, and then they ripen slowly. So you put them in the bottom of your bag. They don't get crushed. And then as they get more ripe, you you eat them and you can just pull them open with a Swiss army knife, cut it open and then use the same like knife to just spoon feed it in your mouth. So if you're starving and you're on a train or in a foreign country, it beats like 99% of the food snacks you can buy. Cause you know, you eat one avocado, you can go for like three, four hours for sure. So that started the habit. And then I just, uh, I, I am an avid marijuana enthusiast, or at least I was when I was younger. And I think, yeah, um, avocado slash guacamole is just the greatest treat on earth. so,
2: Wow. All right. That's a good answer. And readily <laughs> available in all parts of Europe?
1: Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I got a bunch in Spain and then I was traveling down through Italy and they were still in Italy. And then I think I don't think I had any when I got up to Amsterdam. I also don't remember a lot of Amsterdam, which kind of segues back to the other subject. Um, uh, yeah. So
2: So what was one of your favorite hangouts in Amsterdam?
1: Uh, the hostel I stayed at for four days, (laughs) I would go downstairs and I'd like cross the street to like the coffee shop. I would buy what I wanted and then just go back up. And we had this huge jar of Nutella. And I just remember like spoon feeding Nutella with like sourdough bread or some bread, maybe it wasn't sourdough. And, uh, all these people kept looking up and taking photos and I couldn't figure out why. And I was staying with two friends that were girls, but we were platonically friends, like nothing was going on. And then I learned on the way out that we were above the oldest um, prostitution house in the history of Amsterdam, and everyone thought we were part of it. And so they were taking pictures of, like, the John. And, like, the yeah. <laughs> yep. So yeah. I'm probably in someone's, like, weird memento book um, as a much younger person. So
2: That's wild. Did you check out any other things in Amsterdam, like Anne Frank's house or?
1: I did did get to a couple of things. I actually didn't go to Anne Frank's. I'm Jewish, and I know this sounds weird to a lot of Jewish people. I mean, I have no interest in, like, Holocaust anything. It's not that I don't care that it happened. It's that I don't need to visit those sites to feel the ancestral, like, pain. And also, I don't really think it's, like... I'm I'm trying not to be controversial, uh, to be honest. It's not, like, a Jewish thing to me. It's just yet another one of genocides. Like, I, I don't think... I think hierarchicalizing, if that's a word, uh, genocides is very immature to me. So, like, what happened in Rwanda in the 90s, to me, is just as bad as the Holocaust. It's just that one was published and talked about a lot more. So, you know, I didn't want to go to, like, either of the camps or any of that kind of stuff, and then I skipped Anne Frank's house, but I did go all over Amsterdam and, like, you know, walked around, and I saw, like, uh, a movie theater and went in and saw a movie and stuff. So, I, I did, like, some cultural stuff, but, to be honest, of the two and a half months I spent in Europe, that was the four days I did the least. I really just, back then, I mean, I, I came from California. Even in California back then, uh, medical marijuana was barely legal. It had been around for a couple of years. I didn't have a license. So it was just mind-blowing, mind-blowing you know, yeah. Yeah, I remember. And, and I was 19, you know, I was like, <laughs> tourism, legal weed. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Amsterdam, I had a great time there. I have many great stories. But um, one of the things that impressed me with Amsterdam was noticing that, oh, police really can be um, there as a part of the support of a community. Like I just noticed how the police force there was very benign, really helpful. I saw a guy just yelling and flipping off two officers as they walked away from him. And they just kept walking. I was like, wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's amazing. That really is.
2: Yeah. Well, and you have, how do you have a wife and do you have children?
1: Yeah. So I have a, I live with my wife and our daughter, um, Alice, who's turning two in about a month. And then I have a seven year old son with a divorced wife and he lives with her in Thailand. Um, oh wow. Yeah. And that was not a choice but that's a very long story that if you want to hear it, I can tell it, but she basically abducted him and I lost my appeal through the state department because I don't know if you remember the Brittany Griner thing that just occurred, but uh, I am no Brittany Griner. I'm not a WNBA basketball star. So the state department does not pull uh heavy in my favor. So they, they tried their best, but um, yeah, that's,
0: that's, I was a very about, weird system. I was reading about you mentioning this in relationship to one of your books Mm-hmm. And it was just going on during the period of time you're writing Ardor.
1: Yeah. So Ardor, which just came out, um, is my ode to my son because I, I raised him until he was two. I spent every single day with him. We got divorced when he was one and a half and we had joint custody. So I saw him. Uh, we, we did like a weird joint custody schedule because we both wanted to see him every day. So we would basically just like flip flop. And uh, and then uh, to to look good and avoid a trial in the divorce, I was urged and urged and urged to allow her to take vacations with him to Thailand, even though I was positive that she was going to do what she did. Um, So I did that because my lawyer guaranteed me nothing would go wrong. And then on the very first vacation he took, she faked a back injury, didn't come home. And the State Department, when I called them... They didn't laugh at me like it wasn't funny, but they, they snickered and said, like, yeah, like you're a moron. Why would you let her go? You should have gone to trial and done whatever it took not to ever let your son out of the country.
2: <laughs> All right. So this is a bit of a curve here, but um, I'm sensing a lot of emotional pain in this experience. What have you been doing or did to heal that's a
1: that's a very deep and uh, profound question, and I, I do have an answer. Um, I turned and pivoted to trying my best to prove my own resiliency to myself, and uh, I didn't do like traditional therapy, but I met this woman here in Arizona who teaches intuition workshops, and her theory, which I a hundred percent subscribe to, is all the answers are inside. Like if you really Relaxed, You know, I've been a meditator since I was uh, nine. My parents are like super hippies and they taught me how to meditate when I was a kid. So yeah. And I love it. So it was not a big step for me to go into like this intuition field, but, uh, basically, okay. I'll tell the little bit longer version and, uh, cause I can tell you guys are okay with this. Um, I went on a vacation while, so while he was in Thailand on his first vacation, I took a vacation to Ecuador to legally take ayahuasca, oh. um, And while I was on ayahuasca, this thing inside me started talking to me. Now I call it intuition, but I didn't even know that word. And it told me that I wasn't going to spend most of my time with my son until he was older. And it was like a very certain thing. Like when I read in books when people say like, God spoke to me or this voice came, I now get what they're saying. I just would never use those two words. I would just say it's my own voice. It was not, I didn't feel like it was from outside or external. But it was knowledge. It wasn't theory. It was like it was like the same way you just like know you are you. Like you're not actually Mark and Greg. You just know you're you. Those are like labels parents gave you or you chose, and that's why when I was on ayahuasca, that part of me was like, "This is just how it goes." And I, I pushed it a little bit, and it said this is where it gets like kind of spiritual. This was his choice. He picked you as a dad to have this experience. And so that's the only thing I can say that I'm like spiritual about is I think we're here having an experience in our meat suits. (laughs) And I believe you have free will in your meat suit, but I also believe you put constraints on the meat suit. Like, Mm. so when you came to earth, Mm. you did limit yourself. Like, uh, You know, you just did like you picked uh, a race and origin story and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what this is is like. It's his origin story. So to go back to the book, not in a plug, but like literally to answer the earlier question, ardor is about a child who is told repeatedly by intuition that he has to do something and he doesn't want to do it. And the book's about what happens when you resist it, which to finally answer your question, that's what I learned through this experience is resisting what is to be is not healthy and so even if what is to be is your son who you love more than yourself is separated from you it's not the solution is not to create more conflict with my ex-wife and her parents the solution is not to like you know petition the state department and it's not to like like a lot of people are like you should release a video and get a kickstarter and i didn't do any of that i was just like that's not my style like i'm not looking to publicize my son so the book is my my gift to him and myself it's like a a contract with him and when he's old enough to read it he'll get it like it's it's subtle but not that subtle
2: you know right perfect that's wonderful um so i'm hearing you did resist in some realms
1: oh yeah no no i mean like at first when she took him i called the state department i uh like her father is the orchestrator of all this. He's a wealthy Bangkok man. And so if you're wealthy in Thailand, that's how you get anything, you know, you just bribe, 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 bribe. So I knew at the outset that he was going to try to bribe. And so I hired like this ridiculously expensive British lawyer who had successfully navigated two hog treaties for international abduction. However, that had been in Germany, which is a lot more respectful to like international law. And so he said, you know, we can give it a try. And then I just basically ran out of money and I got frustrated. And like one day that same woman I was referring to Lynn Bunch, who does the intuitive workshops. She like told me, she just said, look, you, you know what you're doing? Like, you know that this is not what the plan was. If, if before this happened, you knew he wanted to be alone. Why didn't you let him be alone? And then I was like, he'll never forgive me. Uh You know, it's like, there's a, psychological head case element to all of this which was like i cannot picture my son not hating my guts and not having to go through this horrible like series of interactions i'm very lucky they uh occasionally skype me with him and at first when i had the state department on my side they were playing ball meaning they would like skype me every day just because he knew from his legal team that he had to like make it appear that they were being congenial um, the reason I gave up the case is because his best friend, who's also an American, convinced me that if I played by their rules and dropped the case, everything would work out. And then about two years later, they just stopped their end of the agreement. So I see him intermittently. He has a Skype account. He knows my name. He's always called me dad. Everything is, is set for a successful launch much later. And you, you have children. Like, whatever age he decides, it's totally up to him. You know,
2: Right, right. It's so much is so amazing in this story. One, that you received this inner voice saying, This is the path, and you were chosen to support this path. And you get back home and you're like, Fuck that path.
1: <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I don't know if I could swear, but yes, that is, uh, yeah.
2: You, you I can, mean, like there's an element of our higher self, but we're still here and we need yeah. to rise up to
1: that it's also your my own anger scared me i had not been an angry person or at least i didn't think i was and i was very frightened by my anger like it actually scared me and i see now when i see people getting angry i'm more like take a step back and don't try to help like like that energy you don't want to like get in that field you know
2: um so how does your current wife um allow the space for this thread of who you are to be a part of your thread together.
1: That's a great question. She's uh, the most supportive, loving person I've ever had in my life. I feel like she's the reward um, because it pretty much the moment I dropped the case was when I met her. And so it seems very like divine and uh, it was harder before we had a kid together. Now that we have a kid together, she understands what I'm missing that really helped. Uh, she didn't have any children. And so I think there was a part of her that was kind of like, just let it go. You only had him until he was two. Like, you know, if, if you have a kid, like even four months is enough to bond, especially as a father, you know, I think as a mother, you're bonded like out of the door. But, um, and so two years, I mean, you know, it's just like, he, he's a part of me. And so like now our daughter's almost two and I keep telling her, I'm like two weeks after her birthday, when she turns two, I'm going to, make you imagine what it would be like if he never, if she never came back. Cause that's when it happened. He was two years and two weeks old. And it's not like a mean thing. I'm just like, keep informing her like, Oh, you think you love her now? Just wait another month, you know? And like, so that's, that's my take on it, but she's been like so supportive. I mean, she just like, she watches me with sadness. She, uh, she's the one who keeps my morale up. Like I read him handwritten cards every two weeks and mail them. And like, mm. you know, I just want to quit. I want to quit all of it i want to forget about him like you know i'm saying this super facetiously right, right. Uh, but yeah it seems you know sometimes that urge to quit it's so strong and why some humans do quit and some don't and I, you know i just as of now i'm still a human who hasn't quit
2: you know you know what you're sharing resonates with part of my personal story and my sister's my sister lost her son when he was around 21 almost 22 and i believe And knowing her, there's an element of her accepting that this is a wound she will have for her whole life. And she still wants to be a joyful person. So there's an element of this medicine, this whatever it is is always this suffering is always going to exist. How do I thrive and be joyful with this element?
1: Yeah. I've noticed ever since it happened and I accepted it, so not when it happened, but since I've accepted it, I, like, cry and laugh at the same time a lot now. It's, like, the weirdest, like, there should be a word for it, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange, and I think that's the paradox of existence in a nutshell, is that, like, I've heard Ram Dass say this before. If you're not laughing and you're not crying, you're not living. Like, there, everything is simultaneously hilarious and awful. Kurt Vonnegut wrote about it a lot too. You know I mean? It's not like I'm, I'm not like inventing a wheel here, but I think what
0: you're referring to is samsara.
1: Oh, actually. Yeah. Holy crap. You're wise. (laughs) (laughs) That was such a good drop.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I feel for you, like going through that challenge and then it makes me even more curious about what potent literary experience might be living in ardor. And why did you choose that name? Ardor
1: was the street I grew up on. It was the first like street name I had to memorize and I was always obsessed with it. And then when I found out it's also a word with like an actual meaning that totally connects to what I'm dealing with, I decided to name the character Ardor. And then the other reason the book is about psychics. And when I came back from that ayahuasca experience and what happened, happened, I became obsessed with the idea of like, was I psychic or how does time and space work? Like, what am I, what am I dealing with here? Like, I don't feel like I'm psychic and I don't believe in psychics. So let's explore this. So under the guise of research, but actually just cause I was a kid who grew up in Berkeley and would drive past psychic shops all the time. And Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona is like the psychic capital of the world. There are just like so many psychics and probably so many rooms. <laughs> so I saw um, like 15 psychics and Two seemed sort of real, and then one blew my mind. And the one who blew my mind, I said, can I interview you to, like, write this book? And she said, yeah, but there's, like, nothing to tell you. And I was like, what do you mean? I want to hear how it works. And she's like, no, 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 you don't get it. I read what your mind is, is projecting into its own future. So she's like, you're just headed on a course, and I can see where you're headed, and you can't. But she's like, I'm not reading, like, the future. I'm reading your mind. So she convinced me of like this concept of like there's the predetermination and then there's also this free will and like, there are these levers and you're just kind of like, so the more you don't use free will, the more it would be predictable. And then the more you interfere with free will, the the more like curves you'll take that woman who I mentioned before, she talks about like exits from the highway. So like you're on plan a and plan a is just like the joyous life that we all want to live. But when you like, give into your rage and you like beat the crap out of someone when you're 15, you're taking like a huge detour. And if you don't like get back on plan a at a certain point, you can't even get back to plan a, you're just going to be stuck on plan B now. And she talks about how a lot of like life is people living with regret because they won't admit that they're on a new plan. And that's more stressful than just admitting hmm. you're on a new plan.
0: Hmm. To me, this, this idea of will forces and the framework of karma, it's actually the lesson plan that the, exerc- the exercising of the will is the reason we come here. And the great, the, the great mystery school of incarnation has as its core element the fact that we have to bang up against circumstance and have desire and appetites and will that have us like determining these different directions as you're describing. And, you know, the way you said it, where we project our thoughts into the future, that's what manifestation is. And so we're creating a reality from the will forces and to the extent that we inhabit fully that will force on a consistent breath-by-breath breath, intentional level, we render that path before us. And so I, I actually don't believe in the faded path or the sort of destiny thing that you described of. I just think that you, you've got your own will forces and they're acting in, in the, in, in the, the decision, the car, the cause and effect relationships, or you're passive. That means you're bumping into everybody else's and kind of being buffeted around. That's kind of my view. Yeah, but I, want I to like that a lot. A challenging question. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. <laughs> I hope. What, what is challenge theory?
1: Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so funny. I, uh, <laughs> Okay, so um, the best-selling book that never was is my idea when I was – okay, when I was in the 90s, I used to watch a lot of David Letterman, and he had stupid human tricks, oh, yeah. and uh, I was obsessed with it, so I decided to do, like, stupid human tricks on myself, and that kind of, like, became what I call challenge theory, which is uh, the only thing to do in life is to give yourself challenges, like, I'm going to get up to 500 push-ups, I'm going to – uh, eat a whole jar of nutella when i'm high <laughs> like you know there it doesn't matter what it is it's just like challenges are fun for me and so uh, i wrote this book called you science and uh, i have a i have a web like essay series that i do at mikeyop.com and if you're a premium subscriber i actually made the ebook out of it and i'll give it to you if you buy it uh, because in the effort to get it published uh, <laughs> uh, this is so embarrassing to admit I just don't want to go through the hoops to get a nonfiction book published. It is fiction is so much easier. You write a fiction book, you send like the first five pages and like a quick query, nonfiction. They want like a 25 page plan. They want to know your marketing. I hate marketing. I hate advertising. I hate social media. I hate all of it. I have a horrible attitude and uh, I wish I don't hate social media. Like its existence doesn't bother me. I just wish I wasn't on it. But my career mandates that I'm on it. You know, I went to an MFA program when I was like 28, and, and they were just like, if you don't have a Twitter and a Facebook and this, you're, you're, you know. So Challenge Theory is from that book, You Science. But then I also decided during COVID, my wife and I, this is before we had our daughter, we got so bored that we decided to film the book. And so I made these webisodes where I play this, like, ridiculous scientist who's like a moron, but also like really interested in testing on himself. And so challenge theory is one of the episodes from it. And it's also just like this greater concept, but uh, the best example I can give of challenge theory for me was I decided to read like uh, 40 important books in a year. Like, so I read like all these like classics and it
0: was really fun. It was really rewarding. It was hard though, you know? And what was, what was it about that experience that um, was part of the theory?
1: Uh. Well, the, the theory is it's more about like self-esteem to me. Um, if you're not challenging yourself, then you're not going to be like seeing how capable you are of things. And it kind of goes back to what Greg was talking about. Like when you said the word joy, it really resonates. Like that's such the perfect word about like, what's the point of life? It's joy. It, it is like, it's, it's just like Thanksgiving with your friends or your family, you know? And so the challenge to me is like, the joy of accomplishing a challenge is very like a peak experience for me. And so like, I I did like the rim to rim in the grand Canyon, for example. And uh, because I was obsessed with like intermittent fasting, I decided to fast and do it. And that was like really cool because a lot of people were like, you're going to die. And I didn't.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's true. We don't, we think we are so limited, but the truth is our bodies and our capabilities far exceed what our mind thinks is possible. Yeah. David Goggins is a good example of this. I mean, it's everywhere.
2: Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I was going to mention David. He's so incredible. It's funny cuz
1: you know, it's it's just so weird to me like if I saw both of you at like the mall or like, you know, on the street, I would never know that we all think about these things and do it and like I love the proliferation of like spiritual and like esoteric podcasts because it's very cool to see how many So the wackos are evident. They're everywhere. Like, you know, Berkeley, like anywhere, like the wackos are always the first people to talk at like the meetings. They're always the people who are like, oh, well, I'm not coming back to this thing. And that was actually why that intuitive company was like so cool for me. It was the first time I've ever gone somewhere where there weren't wackos. Mm -hmm. It was like normal people like us who were like, uh, therapy doesn't really seem to be helping me. And this doesn't seem to be helping me. Maybe there's like, like a third trick Uh, but yeah, but I, you know, I just, I'm really happy to be hearing you guys talk about things that are so profound and also like your take on it helps elevate me and, and helps me feel that joy and also connect like these, you know, rambling thoughts. Uh,
2: You also, you have a podcast devoted to the metaphysical.
1: Uh, yeah, it's called coffin talk. And, uh, that's actually another thing when you asked me about how did I cope with my son's abduction, um, I I always had volunteered my whole life, but when I had him, I was too busy to volunteer. So as soon as he was gone, I was like, well, I should go back to volunteering. So I I worked at a uh, hospice ward for dementia patients. Oh, wow. And uh, I didn't work. I volunteered. Um, But I was there for three years. And uh, towards the end of it, I realized that the number one thing I think Americans are failing to do is to accept that death is inevitable and then not to look at it as a bad thing. So the whole point of the... yeah. So that's it. Like the pot, you know, and aging sucks. Dying is not this like fun idea to me and watching my parents get older is like really hard, you know, but, but it would be harder if I wasn't like aware of, you know, things, but, but the thing in hospice that I learned was these patients sometimes would like snap up and become like clear. And they would always say the same thing, which is like, I wish I'd loved this person more. I wish I, you know, it was like always like regrets about love and it had never had anything to do with, like, business, money. You know, I mean, I know it's is so cliche to say, but it was cool to see that reinforced with dementia people. Because, like, yeah. even in that state where they're like, there's a blue cat on the window, and the polka dots are coming in my room. I wish I'd loved my daughter more. I should have called her. I don't know why I got mad at her that time when she married that man I didn't like. I should have just been nicer. You know, it's like... So that helps me a lot. So the cop and talk podcast is where, and I undoubtedly will ask both of you to come on now. So, um, and you can say no, but uh, I'll ask you after so that it's not no, embarrassing. No way. I'm saying um, No dude. Yeah, we're not <laughs> to
2: do that. That's ridiculous. Um,
1: and yeah, so, so I will not let you answer this now only because I want to save it for, <laughs> yeah. but I, the only question I plan is just, what do you think happens when you die? And then I kind of try to like, see how that's affecting how you're living. So the, the log line or whatever it is, is like, um, it explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life.
2: What I find really interesting is the, the wackos of the world, I think are actually expanding the boundaries of our finite existence. That's cool. Wacko is such a perspective thing, you know, (laughs) I mean, we are I'm a wacko
1: to most of my friends. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
2: exactly it. And, um, So for you to share these experiences of someone who is obviously on a mental realm that is wacko and then have clarity, it's like, all right, there is a lot more going on. Because if it was in a lab, you know, wacko is wacko. But to have a a, an experience where clarity is coming through, you're like, okay, there's more to this individual than just wacko. In other words, I guess what the stereotypical moral to this story is uh we are really a lot more than our labels are giving credence to.
0: You know, I grew up in, in Berkeley. I, you know, I spent a lot of time cruising around the streets of Berkeley at two in the morning high on various things like LSD and mushrooms (laughs) and marijuana. And I met a lot of wackos. And it (laughs) turns out I'm not one of them, despite those behaviors, right? And I think the delineation, one of the big delineations, I mean, this now starts to be about a mental health conversation, which is an important conversation for our culture. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the delineations is that wackos go to the fear side so heavily that they become in, um, impaired and they start to impair others when that paranoia begins to clamp down on their ability to exercise their will forces in their living of their lives. And so they feel at, at cause, they feel um, at the whim of the tide of life and the, the way things go. And so that's how I see it. And and w- what really happens for me is there's this compassion that shows up, but also boundaries because there's just a, a limit to how much I can actually manage to, in terms of being in the presence of a person um, like that. And everyone I've met so far, I've been able to hold space for this idea of speaking to them with dignity and respect and grace And I think that's really important. So much of what we call regular society isn't even capable of being at grace or at, at, uh, you know, common sense level of courtesy in our culture, especially where we live in Marin, like Marin's really become the entitlement zone. And that's what's, that's the medicine, right? We're all in this thing together. And we, we have got this opportunity to use that, that heart energy to really make our empathy count. Right. And it's just, it's really, really something that needs to be, you know, it needs to become as, as, Undeniable as gangrenous compassion. Love it. I love
1: it. Yeah. And uh, the Bay Area is, well, it's a laughing stock of the country now. And it is not our fault necessarily, us who grew up there, but it is, you are different if you grow up there because you are so used to mental illness in public. It's just ubiquitous. And now when I go back to visit, because uh, I moved away from Oakland in 2016. I lived in Oakland for most of my time there. Um, and uh, and so it's it's interesting because uh, I miss the Bay Area, like nothing else. Um, but I sold my house and live in a mortgage-free Arizona house. So uh, there's tons of us coming here. Uh, yeah. But, um, but I bring all this up because uh, that recent – I don't know when this is going to release, but there was that um, – questionable homicide, murder, whatever you want to call it, on the subway in New York uh, recently. And it was where, uh, just for context for people listening, a former Marine and four other people uh, took what they viewed as a hostile mental illness person and subdued him and then choked him to death and he died. And uh, again, I'm not going to label or talk about the nuances of that so much as the experience of being on the BART every day and seeing people who scared the hell out of me and I have so much sympathy for every character in that story. That's, that's like to go back to you know, gangrenous compassion. It's just so sad that we as a team don't have our shit together, that we can't like take care of these people. Because, you know, when I was saying wacko earlier, I was actually trying to refer to like the elated people who tell you like everything you envision will come true. All you have to do is say like, I'm going to be rich. And, you know, so that was the charlatans. but, But yeah, but there's like, the exact other side of this, which is like why, why it's a mental health conversation. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond me. I can't solve it. I don't know what to do, but I do know that, uh, the way people are mocking the Bay Area is the problem. Like,
0: Well, I'm kind of grateful, actually, because we we were kind of growing too fast, and I'm glad that's sort of plateauing. And if this is what it takes, it's sad. I don't necessarily want to live with a mental health problem on the streets, but at the same time, I'm not sad that it's keeping people away. And number two, this is just kind of a left turn, so hang on. (laughs) It'd be so much better. If instead of we carrying mace canisters around for protection, we had canisters that had like MDMA or some kind of laughing gas in them. So that when someone was getting weird with you, instead of creating a violent interaction where they end up in pain, you spray with this stuff and suddenly they're giggling.
1: Yeah. Uh, here's a left turn on your left turn. This is why I'm all about um, uh, forcing... Uh, driverless cars in society, because then people can just do drugs, and we don't have to worry about the one real downside to like public uh, intoxication, in intoxication, which is like seriously like the driving aspect of it. You
0: know, it's funny to well, me because they'll, they'll just try to fly and jump out the window. Then, <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it is. It's it's hard. Look, when I talk to other people who like have experience with psychedelics and drugs, it's it's such a hard thing to explain to people. Because it's not like I think everyone can do these. I know they can't. I've seen people have bad acid trips. I have seen people have bad pot trips. Um, I've had a bad pot trip when I ate brownies back when we were kids, and we just, like, <laughs> made butter, and we had no idea what the hell we were doing. And uh, so it's, like, weird because I'm for safe drug exploration and use. Uh, uh, and so it's a weird time because I want to be, like, an advocate of things, but then I'm like, oh, and but 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 but, you know, like, this, 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 and that. So. I love your
2: idea. You know, that just brings me back to what you said right at the beginning of this is it's all inside us. And I think what occurs to me is this element of like the drug is the saving grace outside of myself. And part of my experience with hallucinogenics is that quite often would bring me to a place experientially that I didn't know how to get to on my own. So like I'm sort of lifted up, dropped off somewhere, and then back to who I am. And I, it's almost like with you and your son, where you were given this very clear, that's the path, support it. And when you got back, you were like, fuck that. Because you hadn't actually done the journey from point A to point B. So there's a disconnect.
0: I definitely agree.
2: Yeah. This
0: also brings up the idea that, like you talked about meditation, and there's a large movement now where we're starting to wake up to what the body's capable of through various things like breath practices and the kinds of things like samadhi tanks that don't involve the in- introduction of externalized uh, psychedelics. And I've done a couple of things recently with breath practices. Where I was able to access that part of my own inner world without having to take a chemical that has like a whole, you know, neurological impact downside to me. So, you know, through meditation and the cultivation of joy as a daily practice, you learn to open that up and extend it throughout the day. And there's something that resonates and, you know, and then breath practice opening up this idea of gratitude and getting connected to that universal tone of grace that we all, that's all part of who we really are. Like, when I think about quantum physics, I just go like, okay, this is Mark's axiom. The universe is actually made of love. That, that's what our fundamental nature at a root level, it's light, it's warmth, it's heart, it's it's love. And I'm all for like having that delusion in place of any other, uh you know, temporary delusions about this life because that's a great operating system to operate from.
1: Yeah, it's a... Uh... There's this question in, in philosophy that I love to ask people, so I'd love to hear both of your answers. If someone offered you a chance to go on the trip of your dreams, but the one condition is you would never remember it, would you go? I'd kill
0: them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's a <laughs> destroyed joke setup. <laughs> I did, but I I think I did, but I
2: can't remember. Yeah. What if that's what's happening all the time?
0: (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah. Well, maybe that's our past lives.
1: You know, I've thought about this a lot. Uh, One of the guests I had on Coffin Talk was a past life uh, regression analysis. So she gave me like a free session. And uh, it was hit and miss. I'll I'll just put it that way. But the one thing that I did take away from it is – when I was in the hypnotic trance and I was talking about this life, I had no connection or care about the person. Like I remember vividly this one like path life. And again, I said, hit and miss, this was the hit, which is, I was this like very pompous, very proud French businessman. And I was at the trials after like the guillotines and in the French revolution. And I was so proud to be allowed at the trial. Like I was so like, pompous about it and i remember being like what a piece of shit like in my like judgmental hypnotic state like what a dumbass like y- he thought his money and his clout was important and he was such an asshole and the only reason he survived the french revolution is because he-, he had money and he paid off you know and like and now he's sitting here like pretending to to have like a righteous sanctimonious heir and it was like very interesting because i was just like wow that's, that's really mean Like it's-
0: that's you <laughs> <laughs> yeah like i'm not um, you- uh, a poet Go ahead, Greg.
2: Well, are you familiar with Course in Miracles? You
1: know, I bought the book because a person recommended it to me, and I have it in my nightstand. I haven't touched it yet. Is it is it worth High it?
2: Doorstop. I highly recommend it. Keeps doors open. It's really <laughs> thick. And heavy. Yeah, it's
1: thick. It's thick, and the pages are very like thin. You know, in that yeah. scary way.
2: Yeah. One of the elements I love about it is for me to recognize and pass judgment on someone it has to resonate in me first. That's how I recognize it. So if I see someone who's pompous, and let's say Donald Trump, for example, everything that I attribute to him is first in me. Because that... hundred percent. Yeah. So it's a... a One of the
0: great great things, Mike, about that book is that it's a daily year-long journey. So when you get to the student... Part, that's the part about how you know how to use the book on a daily basis the ride that you go on and the thing that it does to neurolo- your neurology you can't know on this side of it and so i highly recommend that you decide at some point to go ahead and enter into the commitment of doing the daily exercise with it and that sometimes involves journaling it did for me that really helped me kind of get it in there and it still dissipates, right? It's like you said, if someone offered you to go on the most amazing trip of your life, but the one thing is that you wouldn't remember, like, I've forgotten sixty percent or more, maybe seventy-five percent of that what's in that book because it's been so long since I touched it. But when you do that, you're, you're reconditioning yourself to this idea, this uh this fabric of the universe, like I said before, that has it, that we're we're all capable of so much more than we believe, especially around things like love and healing. That's the best sell ever. The person who sold it to me to
1: get the book did a great job, and then I, you know, just kind of went on with my day. Now I have like a renewed interest. So, quick follow up question: Can I, uh, may I, should I, can I skip to that student section, or should I read the actual book first and then do it? No, no, start with that section.
2: I've okay, rec- cool. I've re- I've heard it's recommended to re- actually read the man the text first and then start the daily practices because the text creates the context that the daily practices really cool. I'll to- do both. You can't do both. You're either going to do no. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 challenge
1: in challenge here is is there. I didn't even realize that it was actually a day by day year thing. So that now I love it. You're speaking my language.
0: Well, I'll tell you, you'll get some patience points if you manage to get through it.
1: I am impressed that you have uh, researched me as well as you did. Uh, yeah. I am the most impatient driver in the history of Earth. I was actually going to bring this up four different times that my problem in life is less about my aggression and anger towards the abduction of my son. It's uh, this innate thing. I- I've been hit by a lot of uh, errant drivers in my life, and I was almost killed. And so I just have this rage that comes out when I see people aggressively driving and being like, you know, and then, of course, it's in me. I do it. That's why it's so enraging.
2: Right. You know what's a trip? It still confounds me. Why are cars? It seems universal that the most benign, friendly person, you get behind the steering wheel and your shadow could just (laughs) bloom. (laughs) Uh, What is it about cars, man? Do you ever, like, I
1: sometimes I pretend my mother-in-law's the car in front of me, and, like, I, you know, she's going to, like, tell my wife to leave me if I, like, aggressively tailgate, you know.
2: A That's a good one. Yeah. I'm divorced, good. so that yeah, my mother-in-law's dead. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I don't want to talk too much about metaphysical, because if we really are guests on your show, that seems um, around for that. So uh, to pivot, you're a creative how are you sustaining your life and your family as a creative? Like, that's a good challenge in life.
1: You know, it's it's funny. Uh, I never believed in that book, The Secret, and I didn't like the word manifestation that you used earlier, Mark. And then one day my wife forced me to admit that I 100% manu- manifested the life of my dreams, which is that I, uh, I kept saying I was an English language teacher in San Francisco. So I lived in Oakland. I took BART every single day across the bay into san francisco and i taught um adults at a private school for for english as a second language and they were generally speaking very wealthy business people whose companies were paying for them to have lessons and i was uh nothing's ever like been easier for me in my life than teaching it was like the most natural thing i've ever done and i know i could do it whenever i want and i loved it but when i was moving to arizona there's no market for that like you know just none i mean there's esl in like basic elementary school and stuff. But that's if you want to make like 24,000 a year and be a slave to like horrible public system. I mean, I think we're like the fourth worst state in the country or something. So, Mm -hmm. uh,
2: so I was there and I
1: was like, my, my, my mom kept asking me, what do you want to do for a living besides music, writing, you know, besides the things you actually do that aren't earning enough income. And I said, you know, I know it sounds really dumb, but I I think I should just get paid to read. I love reading. I was an English literature major. I I've, I've read so fast. I, like, retain what I read. And out of nowhere, my dad's friend's wife says, Hey, my company is looking for book indexers. Do you, like, have any people you know who are, like, well-educated and read well? And my dad was just like, Oh, my God, this is, like bizarre. He's like, yeah, my son has a master's in English and is like about to move and needs a job. Oh, great. It's actually a telecommuting. I mean, this is like way before COVID and zoom uh, was like a phenomenon. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. it's like, it's just, we send you a file and email and you send it back. That's it. The training is intensive. So I applied and I was put on a six month waiting list. And like the day I moved to Arizona, they called me and said, are you ready to train? And I was just like, this is crazy. So I'd actually applied and accepted two jobs at high schools here. And it was embarrassing. I was going to make half of what I had made. But because I'd sold the condo in California and like, you know, I, I I was going to make it work. So I became a book indexer and I am still a book indexer as well as the other things I do. And uh, getting paid to be a fiction writer has always been my dream. And I'm like getting there. So, you know, I'm like I am trying to sell art, So if people want to buy it, I would love that. But, uh, but what's more important to me is that I actually... Love this job, book indexing. It's where like I get so much creative joy from it because I just they send me book after book after book. I have no choice. Uh, Some of them are like dense Oxford encyclopedias of African archaeology. Others are like pro Trump. Others are anti Trump. Like it's just whatever a publisher wants to publish. I have no morality compass with it. Like there's no like responsibility except to do what the author wants into index terms.
2: All right, so as I have not heard of a professional book indexer. Are you a person who creates that index at the back of a book? Yeah.
1: So I, I. it's so funny. My dream was to read and get published. And I get published every week. I just don't get my name in it. But I <laughs> literally turn in, like, multiple indexes a week, and they go into books. Like, the most famous one is just funny to me because it was featured in the New York Times. But there was recently a biography on Hunter S. Thompson that, like, outsold all the other ones. and uh, And I was... Charged with indexing it. And so now it's like a best selling book. So I'm like, oh, like tons of people have probably not looked at my index in that book.
2: That's awesome. That index by Mark, Mike Oppenheim. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I know we all have some um, time commitments. I'd love to continue. There's, there's
0: two questions I want to ask before we go. Okay. Right. First is Mike, Pittsburgh Steelers or San Francisco 49ers? Steelers all the way every day. I I grew up hating the Niners. All right, Greg, second question
2: Eminem or Foo Fighters?
1: Wow, that's so interesting. Foo Fighters for sure, because Nirvana was like my first love. Um, It's weird because David Grohl, like, he's the nicest person on earth, but I I have to admit, like, I haven't really enjoyed any of his recent albums. They've all just kind of sounded like muddled rock. Um, But his, his prolific rise to fame was was amazing. Eminem I have come to respect more and more as I get older actually. Um and I think the turning point for me was that movie Eight Mile. It kinda like turned me on. And then I love to talk fast. And when I was a kid, like there were these micro machine commercials of that famous guy who talked fast. And I was the kid at school who did impersonations of him and like, you know, I was popular for like four days because of that. And so Eminem's ability to like use the mouth and like yet be intelligible is beyond I think David Grohl playing drums and guitar and doing everything on his first two albums is like kind of the equivalent. So I'm going to give it to Foo Fighters just because I'm not a huge hip hop rap fan. And I have to be honest about that. So.
2: Well, it sounds like Nirvana sort of edged the the vote. Well, and it's, I mean,
1: if you go back to nevermind and listen to David Grohl's drumming, it's it's incredible because they had a different drummer on bleached and it's just such a worse album. So, uh, smells like teen spirit is not a number one single without David Grohl. And anyone who understands, I play drums, can easily understand why he Kurt Cobain was just, he was like a Beatles songwriter and David Grohl was like, Oh, let's Led Zeppelin this.
2: (laughs) Or maybe, yeah. All right. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Just
1: let's do this. I'm going to do it. I want your verbal consent. Will you both come on cough and talk? (laughs) Absolutely. All right, cool. I will Uh, have you on separately by the way, because it doesn't work if I do you both. So cool. Thank you both. Talk to you
2: soon. All right. See ya. Awesome. Recording
1: stopped.